Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do. Drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-w-changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 23, with the title, Reducing Your Fear and Anxiety. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Mark Wingfield. Mark describes himself as someone who empowers individuals by giving them hugely practical techniques to handle whatever life may throw at them. And when I asked Mark to describe his superpower, he said, my empathy. So hello, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joe. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to be here. So tell me, why do you feel reducing your fear and anxiety is important? What does that mean to you? I think it's so universal that if you don't manage to conquer fears and anxiety, how on earth are you going to be able to achieve your potential? There are so many things that can hold people back and not allow them to perform to their best. And with all the richness that we have in our society, there are people that I work with who are discriminated against, who are bullied, who are maltreated in some way or ignored for however they turn up. But it's my privilege to actually help empower them to deal with whatever they have to go through, acknowledge any fears and anxiety they may have, and give them some techniques that will allow them to deal with it appropriately, effectively, and really achieve 100% of what they're capable of achieving. In the DNI circle, I often hear people talking about bringing their whole self to work. Mm-hmm. And what you've just said there is really quite powerful because you say holding back, um, walking away, but we talk about getting people to bring this, their whole self to work. And, and I often say that it's very easy for you to say, not necessarily so easy for me to do. The more typical you are, the less, the stress you have in your life, the mm-hmm. easier it is to be yourself, isn't it? Yeah. But as soon as you've got something that's hidden within you, there's this anxiety that builds and the fear of, of, of being discovered almost, isn't there? Yes. And I think. Some of that is you will appear different for whatever reason, whether it's the color of your skin or whether it's the way you dress or how you sound, how you come across in some other way, whether it's a disability or whatever it might be. And people form their own impressions immediately. They, and you're aware of that, you know, everybody has unconscious bias of some kind, but some people have overt prejudice, discrimination, and dealing with that can be really tough. So I try and just provide something that will work for an individual. And that can go from just simply communication techniques to staying calm when you're terrified or just a little bit nervous. Or if this is based on trauma, I work as a trauma therapist to take away the emotional context so that people can actually function without worrying about how they feel about it. They just do what they need to do. So it's, it's kind of a, a colorful array of things I've, I try and bring to the, uh, to the party. Does it affect um, younger people more than older people, women more than men, white people less than not white people, straight people less than not straight people, or is it, you can't be that clear cut. I, I don't think you can be that clear cut. I think that everybody, whatever shape or form or color or however they show up, we all have our own fears and anxieties. So no, nobody's without, without fear and anxiety for whatever reason, but the grades of that and the type of fear and anxiety will obviously differ hugely. And I think if you talk about young people, um, 
it's it's a tough time growing up, isn't it? So it's also a fantastically exuberant time and a, a fun time, and you've got all your health, hopefully, and your your full physical abilities, um, hopefully, or you have might might have some kind of limitations. But in those formative years, they will dictate so much of the rest of your life. And there are all sorts of different studies that I'm sure you're aware of as many, if not more as, uh, as I, that, you know, for example, by the age of eight, you're more or less there. <laughs> that's kind of you. Um, and it's, it's detail that's going to be laid on top of that, but you're the fundamental who you are is kind of by the age of eight. Now there's, there's lots of different studies and there'll be people that disagree with that comment, but, um, certainly all what we do know is that those formative years are absolutely crucial. And if something happens to you in those formative years, that's negative, then that can stay with you and be a real drawback for the rest of your life, unless you can do something about it. Hmm. Do you think that the modern world, you know, whether that's online gaming, social media, the selfie culture increases the anxieties that people may have? Or, or introduces new new threats into people's lives. Yes, I do, uh, and I'm thinking of one very specific response that I've been I've been mulling over the a comment that's all, often asked of me. People often ask me, "Do you think nowadays we're more aggressive and violent towards people than we used to be?" And I'm not sure that's well. Go back 13 years, 14 years when I first started my business. I used to say, I don't think so, really. I'm not too sure about that. I think it's just a different type of aggression and violence. But now, with the age of modern technology and this instant culture that we have, instant gratification, you know, you pick up your phone and you can have the answer to generally everything <laughs> in some kind of form, whether it's right or wrong, but you'll get a, you'll get a response. You can put it into Google or whatever your preferred search engine is and find out something. And because people are so used to that further down the road and they can access uh, all sorts of games and things that require action and response. We have instant, um, you know, you go onto the London tube nowadays and we have a little card, the Oyster card, and it'll let you through with your payment Everything goes smoothly like that. If you go onto the internet, you can pay immediately for something. Everything is instant, or a lot of things are now instant. And when suddenly things aren't at that pace, or your expectation that it will be is now unsatisfied, that's when you get a whole host of new issues uh, that perhaps weren't there before, because the speed of things nowadays is so fast and that permeates into so many different other areas. You know, if you only look at social media, I, I work in schools, for example, work with young children, young adults on bullying. And with all the social media that there is now, things like Snapchat, where you can make some comment and it disappears unless somebody's taken a screen grab of it, that has a whole host of new challenges that weren't there before it's bullying but in a slightly different form and so when i was first initially talking about bullying in schools it was very much face-to-face -face techniques how to deal with bullies but as time was gone on people have been asking increasingly about cyber bullying tactics and how you can prevent and protect from a, a technology point of view you still need the face-to-face -face stuff but it's it's been I've noticed it over the years that it's certainly moved more into a um, technological side of things. Yeah, I remember at school, I, I would never say I was excessively bullied, but I, I did experience some minor where you know, shoulder barge into you mm -hmm. occasionally or you know, the in crowd would exclude you or, or, or make you feel uncomfortable. More, more Passive intimidation, if that makes sense, or kind of the looks and the, mm -hmm. the, the the potential threat of something happening, rather than the actual. There was always the kind of that that kind of implication that something might happen, which is psychological rather than physical. Which is, yeah, I, 
I've never, I've not been ever in the trauma of it, but I suppose I've, I've become kind of hyper aware of, of bullying since I, I transitioned myself because I'm, I'm mm-hmm. hyper aware that I polarize the views of certain people. And mm-hmm. there are people in, in this country and around the world that have a kind of an anti or a gender critical view of the world where trans people are seen as being a threat to that view. Mm-hmm. And I have suffered in some ways stalking and, and, and sort of cyber commenting on posts on LinkedIn, Instagram. Mm-hmm. I've been the target of comments on uh, newspaper chat comments on the newspaper sites because I appeared in the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail and the Mirror and things like that a few years ago and some of the comments beneath that I also took part in a documentary online uh, to a channel for a documentary mm. and to see the, some of the comments on the Facebook post about that and, and people wading in and I just I also just started an article uh, a monthly column with the, uh, the Scottish Herald mm-hmm. and last last month I, uh, last one I did was about language I talked about gendered language and all the various other things and this seems to have rattled the cage of someone who's gender critical mm-hmm. and suddenly it's I, I, I end up with all this trolling like they stalked me on LinkedIn they, uh, and a whole load of people found me on LinkedIn a whole load of people found me on Twitter taking the article completely out of context and putting their own their own in thread on this which mm. is kind of hijacking it and it wasn't directly targeted at me but i suddenly realized that i was now vulnerable again and raised my head above the parapet where people were going to you know i now became a target of something so yeah it's very interesting and i'm now thinking that the next article i'm writing in in december and almost in the back of my mind i'm worried again about what the, the backlash may be whereas the first three i wrote i had i had no none of that thought was in my head i was writing from my own lived experience. But now mm. I'm thinking I've got to double think what I'm saying. And that this, this is the problem, isn't it? I'm, I'm now in this zone where I've got to worry about it. Oh, well, I, I could help you with that. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, when you first started talking about schools and that's something I, I hear about a lot, but also have experienced myself because unfortunately in that I wasn't badly bullied any more than, other people at school, but I think it, it happens to probably most people at some point in some shape or form. And I was no exception. And I can remember the jostling and the exclusion and the, um, I mean, I, I even talk about something when, when I speak about bullying, I talk about uh, jungle treatment, which is, uh, people circling me, wanting to knock me down and feed grass in my mouth. That's the shortened version. And I didn't let it happen. I'd seen it happen to other people. And I, I used techniques very crudely um, that came instinctively but stopped people doing anything. And um, so it's this a more refined technique that I talk to people about. But when you're talking about transitioning and, and talking about that and you talk about various newspapers and um, how you're concerned about what's going to happen next and how it's going to affect you. I think you're doing absolutely the right thing because these things need to be talked about and addressed. But from a personal perspective, um, something I do as a, as trauma therapist could help you take away that, that emotional, uh, concern and, and enable you to write without thinking too much about the, the emotion. You still need to think about the consequences and that, that will still be there. But if you can take out the emotion element, you'll probably write a better piece, I would suggest. Yeah, I think I'm more likely to just proofread it a second time rather than with just an extra lens on it. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty resilient person, and this hasn't I haven't internalized this, but it, it just woke me up hmm. to the fact that there are – I'm not as safe as I was, if you like, or hmm. I'm, I, I'm more likely to be. But then if we look at the press, whatever I wrote about, Someone's going to make a comment about it. That's that's what people do. They troll these 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 press sites, and they they become keyboard warriors. They hide behind yes. the anonymity of Twitter and things. So, I, I think it, it just reminded me that this went on because I often live a very privileged life of not caring or not thinking, and it just it was just kind of like a knock on the door going, "Don't forget about me," sort of thing. I thought, "Oh yeah, you're, you're still there. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Now you're there." And and it's worth thinking also that there will be a lot of people out there who you're you're a resilient person. I'm a pretty resilient person, but there are other people out there who might be in a similar situation as us who aren't as resilient, 
and um, I won't I won't mention the details, but something happened recently uh, that I I was appalled at. Somebody was um, not encouraged. Let's just put it like that. Was not encouraged in an environment which is supposed to be extremely encouraging. And um, I I privately messaged the person that had been affected and um, and supported them. Um, overtly on on this uh, this it happened to be a Facebook chat, and I was just appalled they'd been treated in that way. And this individual is again quite resilient, but was quite upset by the comments that had been made, which were unthinking and uh, and not appropriate to the environment that they were made in. So it it can happen in all sorts of different environments, and um, it's worth thinking that there are people that will react differently to you. And uh, that's something I talk about in the workplace type environment where we talk about this, this banter and this humor that sometimes we have in the workplace where one person thinks it's kind of jovial and funny, whereas actually the impact of that on others is demeaning. It reinforces stereotypes or in some cases, it's just another microaggression that's causing them to feel less worthy about themselves. Isn't it? And, yes. and banter is, but you always get the pushback, but it's only a bit of fun. It's only we're trying to make the workplace too sanitized and too PC. It's, it's, and people push back, don't they, on this banter? So how do you address that? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the time people don't intend to, to hurt or insult. Uh, they think they're being funny. They think they're being sociable. That's that's being positive about it. And you can talk to those people, and, and if they find out that they are inadvertently causing distress or upsetting somebody, then they'll be mortified and, and probably apologize and, and stop doing it and maybe be over careful. That might be the <laughs> unintended consequence uh, next time. But there are those people that will be doing it on purpose. And that's why we have the Equality Act. And that's why we have um, mechanisms in place for um protect elements within the Equality Act to make sure that people uh, do get some kind of um, redress if they need to. Um, but I, I think there, there are extreme examples. I remember going to a seminar years ago and it was all about employment law and uh, they were talking about employee handbooks and it's a good idea to have all your discrimination policies and all the rest of it in an employee handbook, of course. And an example was given about... Um, uh, a business owner who hated swearing, of all things. He was a very religious person and, and didn't like any swearing whatsoever. And um, he'd been taken to industrial tribunal for sacking somebody who'd sworn at work. So his advisor told him, right, okay, you need to put every single word that you find offensive in your employee handbook and say, if you say these words on site, you will be dismissed. <laughs> and that's what he did. So that's taking it to an extreme. Um, I think that, you know, people do uh, try and have banter, but it's, it's a fine line between upsetting somebody. And if you are on the receiving end of it and you are upset, you need to tell somebody about it and don't keep it to yourself. Otherwise it's either can continue because they don't intend to, and you've not said anything, or it's going to continue because they find that, yeah, you're hurt and I'm going to make, make sure you keep on being hurt and I'm going to enjoy it. Um, but once you've actually stood up and said, uh, uh, I don't find what you said amusing. When you say that sort of thing, I feel uncomfortable. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to not speak to me like that because those particular words are very derogatory. So please next time don't use those words or something along those lines. And, but that's easier said than done. You know, first of all, you've got the, the personal potential pain or, or emotional distress from those words or what's happened or the environment they happened in. But secondly, you've got to learn how to do it thinking, using all your great emotional intelligence and expertise when you're really upset and your amygdala's doing overtime, which is the emotional center of the brain, and you can't get the words out because your cognitive function isn't working very well. So, that's what I help people with. I help them calm down so that they can think these things through, have an approach that's going to work, that is uh, neutral, hopefully, rather than 
aggressive, um, assertive certainly, but just pointing out open, honest communication. Um, when you said this, I felt like that. So what I'm going to ask you to do, please, is do this. And, you know, just have a, just a, a structure to, to responding that is, is going to work. And if they say, well, you can F off, you know, then you know where you need to go. You might need to complain, find out what the internal workings are of an employer. A good employer will, will have that very clear in whether it's a handbook or in any other guidance. And they will have access to, you know, talk to a manager or to somebody in personnel, HR, whatever, whatever it's called. And they can get some redress, hopefully, before they have to go to a tribunal of some kind or take legal action. It's interesting what you say about swearing, then. I was on a taking part in a webinar or was was more of an interactive online meeting. Mm. And one of the, the, the people who was attending at the meeting, they had a very kind of aggressive posture. They, they were really leaning into the camera. Mm. They were almost like, almost like in, in the, in the frame. Eating the microphone they, almost. <laughs> well, almost like eating the screen rather than the yeah. microphone. It was kind of, they were really, really into, into this frame. And they were using swear words like punctuation. Yeah. I, I, I found their whole presence in this, um, this event completely distracting. I found their, their stance, their language and the way they were talking almost like a bullying type stance. You know, I'm, it's almost like posturing and aggressiveness. And at the end, there was a kind of a, 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 a an opportunity for everybody attending to sort of give a bit of group feedback and say what mm. they thought. And I, and I, I just, I just looked dead in the camera and said, I found this, this, most of this meeting completely offensive. The language by, used by one of the people was, uh, you know, used swear words as punctuation, their stance and their, their, their aggression, aggression is not the kind of event I want to be part of. And mm. I, and I, I made it quite clear and, and kind of everybody in the room got, I could see everyone else's eyes looking at me. And so I just kept my, a smile looking directly at the camera, just kept my stance <laughs> and just, I just part myself with a very relaxed, with a relaxed face. Um, as if to stand up to that bullying behavior, I wasn't going to w- walk away from it. And uh, a few people after me said, well, I'm glad someone said something because I found that again, yeah, that they were finding that being, being in that environment uncomfortable with this person. But mm. I then, but the, the, the bit I was going to come on to, you know, what you were saying it's all very well standing up in that instance, but then you've got to think about whether a you're going to get backed by somebody and supported in that claim, whether there's any going to be any follow up victimization, and often people walk away. Mm. They, they, often people are targets or, or of, of bullying or intimidation are the people that don't know how to stand up for themselves. Which is, I appreciate it's exactly where you come in. Mm. But there's so much fear of recrimination, fear of, of the bullying getting worse, isn't there? And that this is, this is, I guess, what you do. So, mm. what, what can people do in that situation? Yeah. Standing up sometimes, running away is often the easiest answer, isn't it? Yeah, that, I mean, I I help people across a range of sort of conflict situations, and um, you you can choose whether you deal with something there and then. And sometimes it's not appropriate to deal with it there and then because you're, you're on the back foot. You haven't got all the information you need, need perhaps you're, um, somehow triggered and not thinking straight. You might be very emotional and that isn't the best time to give of your best. So picking and choosing your time is really important and place as well because I've, I've had instances where things have been said and done and you need to nip that in the bud, but you don't nip it in the bud in front of other people because they may be your allies or otherwise, depending on their loyalties or how they interpret or perceive the situation. They're not you. They haven't received it the same way as you have and don't have your background and experience that might mean that something is particularly cutting or hurtful or embarrassing or whatever it might be. So maybe having a chat by the the water cooler, the the coffee machine, by the kettle, the two of you is absolutely the best thing to do. But maybe once you've calmed down 
or walked out in, into the yard years ago when I, when I took a particular employer. Um, my boss's boss was really, really winding me up. I actually got up and walked out of the office, not in a rage or anything. I just got up. They didn't know I was doing this at all. I just got up, walked out, and walked around the yard outside, which had lots of bits of metal lying in the yard. <laughs> and it was winter time, and I was frozen, and it just calmed me down and brought back brought me back to reality and how I was going to deal with it. Just so I didn't say say or do the wrong thing, because I have done it, done that in the past. You know, another manager at another job, um, he put me under a lot of pressure, and I just blew up, and it was an open plan office. And it wasn't pretty. <laughs> so, so we can really do ourselves a disservice. And being able to be calm in the moment, be able to think, okay, I need to do something different. Pick my pick my time and place and work out what my approach is. You know, work out what's the culture of this organization I'm in. How do they provide support? Do I need to go and talk to somebody in the union? Do I need to go and talk to a colleague? Just let let blow to a friend of mine who will listen you know what what's the strategy is this a one off is it repetitive is it part of a pattern of behavior that's being observed across the culture of the company what's the best way of approaching this because if you if you blow up like i've blown up in the past it won't do you any favors or if you just walk away as you've described joe that's not going to deal with the issue it may well come back to haunt you other people may be subjected to it, and the perpetrator, if that's the right word, will be getting off scot-free. And, you know, there's nobody limiting their behavior, uh, however distasteful and um, nasty it might be. So it, it's a real judgment thing, and, and it's, an odd, it's not an easy answer. It's not a quick fix. Um, you can the reality learn- is it's quite – it is – disturbingly prevalent still in most in a lot of workplaces where we talk about racism or sexism yeah and it, it, it may not be seen as you know, playground bullying but there's a lot of discrimination which is also bullying yeah discrimination is bullying mm-hmm. victimization is bullying this still goes on in the workplace uh, around um women being denied opportunities being treated in a more demeaning way, mm-hmm. the language used, uh, reinforcing limiting beliefs, denial of opportunity uh, for women, for black people, for many minorities. And mm-hmm. it's really difficult in the workplace to stand up because the culture in a lot of organizations is such that the person in power is kind of believed by default. It's kind of, well, they're a good fellow. They're a good person. They're, they're, they've got a high-performing team. And, of course, they're going to react this way. And, you know, we hear... Yeah, you know, we've got the Home Secretary setting a poor example of of what is perceived to be oh, acceptable yeah. workplace behaviour, haven't we? And uh, yeah. but, but I don't think she is unique in that style of leadership. And that's the sad thing in offices, isn't it? There's a lot of language of, of, of uh, the workplace bully exists. And that's how do people overcome that when they feel the dice and the cards are stacked against them? You know, sometimes leaders in organisations have have to be – um, told that the culture that they think they're leading is not actually the culture that's being developed because some people who are absolutely have the right, the right instinct and the right approach, non-discriminatory approach and allow everybody to flourish to the best of their ability. Um, they may be ignorant of what's going on a few levels down, but if they are aware, then there is legislation in place to say, actually, no, this isn't right. And again, a different business I've worked for before was extremely autocratic. And I wouldn't say it was particularly discriminatory, but it was very, you either do it like this or you're out. You know, we'll give you loads of opportunity to to do well, but if you fail up, you're out. (laughs) It was very, very cut and dried. And um, I eventually left that organization because – it, it just didn't suit me. And, um, you know, I didn't think I was being given the opportunities that I was capable of achieving either. So it's two, two pronged thing. I could just about put up with the culture because there were good things about it as well, to be fair. Um, but I wasn't getting on as I wanted to. And 
I think um, people sometimes know and sometimes they're ignorant of what's going on in their own workplace. Uh, how many, how many senior people bother to go down on the shop floor to find out what's actually happening and how people communicate? And are they the best example of that? I, I see this all the time when I when I talk to uh, organisations who have frontline staff who are being abused, threatened with aggression and violence potentially, and their leaders have no idea what's going on. Or if they do, they just ignore it and think, well, that's what they're paid for. Um, that, that, you know, that comes with the job. And that's not acceptable. And with the duty of care that organisations have to protect their staff, they, they should be doing the right thing. They should be going down. They sh- in my opinion, leaders should always be mixing with every level of staff in the organisation. And the job of a leader is to lead. And how can you lead if you're in your ivory tower? Uh, you can do a certain amount and dictate, but that's not my preferred way of, of leading. You know, you've got to involve people. You've got to lead people through, actually physically lead them through and show them how things should be done. Um, I, I remember one uh, train company recently that uh, uh, went no, I've got to be careful of what I, what I say now because I work with a few. But uh, there's one train company I know where there was a bit of a commotion at a platform, and he asked all of his staff to go down there, but he didn't go. Asked everybody else to go, but he didn't. And I thought that was really telling. And um, yeah, I, I didn't see that as good leadership at all. There wasn't a good reason it's why you should. You mentioned about a train company. I was. Um I was on the the train from Waterloo heading towards Portsmouth. Uh, it's probably about a year ago. I mean, back in the days when we used to be able to travel, you know, yeah. there's, 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 there's yes. wonderful days where, where train travel was, was kind of everyday thing um, mm. rather than a treat again. Um, so I was on this train out of Waterloo and Southwestern trains, whatever they're called these days, uh, it's about seven o'clock in the evening and I, I normally sit right at the back because I get off at Petersfield, so it's best place to get off is right at the back of the train. So get straight on the train at Waterloo. Mm-hmm. And that's where normally the buffet trolley sets off from, so they park it up in the little, uh, the, the um, whatever you call the sort of gap in that, you know, the, where, the, where the doors are. So there's a little, the, the yeah. corridor area there by the doors, uh, the festival, or whatever, yeah. I think it's called, festival, yeah. And uh, so the, the, it was a lady who was, who was, man, who was manning the trolley that day, and she was kind of parked up, ready, ready for the train to set off. Because I think they set off once the train's moving. To, mm-hmm. People are sat down, and then this, this 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 crowd of office people got on. Who and I suspect they'd already spent the afternoon in the pub. Uh-huh. So they were all kind of happy and jo- jolly and lively, and they kind of clocked the buffet trolley and decided they wanted to carry on drinking there and then. So rather than. Mm-hmm. Um, wait until the trolley has set off and started serving. They're going, oh, come on, can't you serve us now? Can't you serve us now? And the one was coming under a bit pressure. And eventually they all sat down. And one of the, the protagonists, the leader of this little group, mm. stood up in his very very posh suit and you know, but it's very slurry sort of. So I said, oh, come on, love. You know, you, you know you want to serve us. We'll be good. We'll behave. You know, just want a couple of glasses of wine. And, and suddenly they, they put their arm around her. Mm. And they were they were hanging on her, calling her love and come on, love, you want to help us like this. And I was sort of sat there thinking, this is completely inappropriate. This is mm. completely not acceptable. And I sat there and I pondered. Everybody else was ignoring this. And I, I eventually took a photograph of what was going on and started filming a bit of it. And I was getting more and more upset with myself for not saying something. Mm. I was almost I almost getting to the point where I thought I should have stepped in, I should be saying something. This is not acceptable behaviour. And if it, eventually it stopped and she, she passed off down the train. I looked at everybody around me in the cord, in the carriage saying, did you see that? Did you find that appropriate? And everyone immediately put their newspaper up or their iPad on their phone, looked away from me and went, oh, we're not getting involved. And I thought, it's incredible. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to report this to British Transport Police. So I, the number flashed up on the overhead board. Yeah, I, the I text, text number. 61016. Yeah. yeah, so I texted that. So I've just witnessed a piece of uh, as assault on a member of staff because it mm-hmm. wasn't assault on a member of staff. She didn't invite. It was physical. It was touching and hugging. And I thought that was assault. I wanted 
So I reported it and got a message back saying, please email the photographs and, and the time and any mm. photograph, anything you got. So I emailed it all back. And uh, when the guard came down, collecting tickets, I, I reported to the guard and said, yeah, I've just, just to let you know, I've reported to transport police that that, that, that gentleman over there mm. assaulted your member of staff and I found the behavior inappropriate. And then the, this, this, this chap, was going to get off the station at, at Guildford. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay. So there was no chance for transport to police to come on in advance. So I, I thought, well, I was just going to stand up and just say something to this person. I said, so I, I tried to shake his hand. Yeah. And I, I grabbed his hand and shook his hand. And as I did, I was, I was passively hoping that I would distract him in his drunken state from getting off. <laughs> so I wanted, I almost, I almost wanted to hold his hand. You like to live dangerously, so Joe, don't you? So, so he missed the stop. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I said, said, I saw what you did. I've reported what you did to transport police. And just to let you know, I thought I found your behavior completely unacceptable. And he was like, huh, what's going on? And he said, well, I've got to go. I said, do you not feel any remorse? He said, I didn't do it. And he set him off. So, and then I got, I got a call back from transport police the next day. I appreciate I'm rambling on a bit, bit about this. But transport police decided not to take it any further, or Southwest Trains decided not to take it any further. Because the person involved, the woman who was – decided it wasn't that much of a problem. So they had no evidence. You know, they had other evidence. It's like, that, that, how sad is that, that someone feel, has to feel that that's part of their job, that that's, can be, that, that they have to put up with that every day or, or occasions. And how, how incumbent is it on an employer to, for duty of care to not, regardless of whether the employee felt they'd been abused, they had CCTV from the train, they had my photographs, there's clear evidence and they should have stood up and said, actually, that's not behavior. We want passengers to exhibit to our staff, regardless of whether the staff thought it was okay. And I, and I, felt, I, just, felt, I just thought to myself, Southwest Trains or whoever the train company was at the time are not an organization I'm really happy. I don't think their ethics are great here if they're not prepared to stand up and say something at that point. And that was quite disappointing. And But the sad thing in the relation to what we're talking about here is the lady who was operating the Buffalo trolley clearly thought this was an everyday occurrence. It happens. And she's almost been socialized to believe it's okay. Hmm. That's the sad thing that story. It's very different with – I've worked with um, three, train, three train operating companies so far, and they take a very, very different approach to the one that you you've experienced and the very first one i i worked on strangely enough uh, there's a real strong link to what you just said um i was brought in because a lady had been sexually assaulted serving food and drink and um poor lady was traumatized as you might expect and um she wasn't going to go back to work even though she loved her job and anyway the good news story is that she was back at work shortly after I, I helped her with the, the trauma therapy. And then we worked with all of the staff, all of the onboard catering staff, to make sure that that sort of thing never happened again. And what we did was we trained um, every single um, staff member in assertiveness and techniques, but they called it a zero-tolerance program, the company. And it wasn't just our training. We were just part of it. What they also did was they put up signs and posters everywhere saying it is not acceptable to do this X, Y, and Z to our staff members. Um, they should be treated with respect. They had a little adverts of um, children dressed up in their, their parents' clothing, say, please, you know, be nice to my mummy and daddy or, you know, that sort of thing. And um, the team were, I mean, they were very focused on customer service but not customer service at any cost like you, you might have experienced on that, that day when they wanted more more and more drink. So when we trained them, it was all about saying and being able to say things like, um, I can't serve you any more alcohol, sir, I'm not, so sorry, and moving on. Or if they had the hand put around them, would you please take your arm off me? Would you please stop doing that, sir, madam? What you know, whatever the situation was, and then how to ramp that up if they got a negative response or an abusive response uh, to the point where we also trained them in uh, self defence as well. So it was um, it was a fantastic program. We've as I say we've done that one with three different train operating companies uh, very successfully. And what's really gratifying about that is that people have the confidence to turn around and say, um, "Please don't do that. 
and to deal with, I mean, this one was food and drink on the train, but what do you do when somebody's threatened to stub their cigarette out on you because they've been told not to smoke, uh, that drugs involved, football, gangs, all sorts of... Not wearing um, a mask. Yeah. <laughs> not wearing a mask. Yeah. Now, yeah. Smoking, but actually it's a... Um, uh, oh, what's the a word? Vape. Vaping, thank you. Vape? Yeah. Yeah, vape, yeah, vaping's not allowed on, on trains, which a lot of people don't understand why. So it's being able to convey why that's not such a good idea and doing it calmly without getting aggressive, without being too passive, just finding that right balance of coming across as professional, customer-focused, but still authoritative and, and assertive. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting mix. And, and for some, that's really difficult. But we, um, we do experiential training to, to get them in a place where they can do it. And they're coached all the way through it. And they leave a course of metaphorically 10 feet tall with, with the confidence. And that's half the battle of being able to do it. We, if we go back to our earlier conversation about, you know, people not being able to do it, but once they've actually experienced it and I mentioned to you, I might put my dark glasses on. That's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do. We frighten people deliberately on a course. So I'm now for the sake of anybody listening to this, I'm putting my dark glasses on. What are you looking at? Hey. And because the eyes are hidden, because they betray so much of how we're feeling and you suddenly get that taken away and the rest of the body acts very aggressively. We, we have somebody coming towards you who we call the intimidator. You have a coach standing by your side. And if you react badly, either aggressively or too passively, the coach will immediately step in and modify your behavior with your support. If you do really well, the coach just says, fantastic, Joe, keep on going. That's brilliant. And they just whisper in your ear. So it's actually happening and anchoring that experience. And we make sure it's a successful experience so that if that ever happens in real life, you switch immediately back to what worked well for you beforehand. We've imprinted it in the amygdala, the emotional center of the brain, which is where you go into your, when you when you have your fight or flight experience. So it, that's why I love doing that. It, it just helps people deal with really nasty stuff and uh, or mildly disturbing stuff it doesn't have to be as, as high octane as that but we, we 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 do the worst so you can cope with anything really and we're horrible we're horrible when we put the glasses on <laughs> we say the worst I stuff we really do sometimes on a train or something like that sometimes it's just about making a very loud noise or, or saying or, or saying at the top of your voice that isn't acceptable absolutely and that creates this kind of everyone now sees what's going on and the person who is perpetrating is ho- hopefully will realize that they're now being viewed and they haven't got they haven't got control of the situation anymore yeah particularly on a, on a train carriage where you're perhaps moving along at whatever speed you're moving along you can't escape so you, you've got to really work around the, the furniture in in the environment that you're in and using other people to your benefit, you know, get people on side uh, and and doing just what you just said, you know, being very clear, that is not acceptable, sir, madam, you're going to have to stop doing that. I'll have to report you to the police, whatever the words are that are appropriate. Um, and sometimes the best thing actually is to walk away. You know, when somebody, I mean, if, if you come across somebody who's psychotic, who just doesn't care, if you come across somebody who's waving a needle at you, then you you don't confront them and you you get you get to the other end of the train and you lock yourself in with the driver if you can um, you know if they if they've got a vendetta against your uniform because you're the figure of authority that's come to challenge them then get out of there and uh, you know in, in the last resort if you can't go anywhere that's when the physical self defence comes in but you you shouldn't shouldn't do that unless you really really have to um, so it yeah it, it it makes for very interesting. Um, training sessions <laughs> yeah i can imagine so, so you said right at the beginning about sort of the age of eight is kind of like a a formative type age mm. where if you've been used to um being abused or being treated badly you're, you're, you're already kind of feeling more meek and mild and, and you, you you become a habitual receiver of bullying or, or violence presumably the opposite also applies if you 
you're used to being treated in a bullying way, but does, you would also maybe take on the role of a bully as well. Is that, does that, is that cause and effect? You know, if you see, you do, if you experience, it becomes you or, or. It can be. I, I don't think it, it necessarily has to be. Um, if everybody's situation is different and it certainly can be that. And, you know, that, that's what used to be trotted out all the time as, um, you know, bullies are, are people who feel inadequate and they want to get power over other people. I think it's more complex than that. I think that, you know, if you've had a, um, some nasty physical violence against you in the home or sexual violence or something like that, um, you, you might just think that's the norm and that's how you treat people. You know, it's, it's ingrained. It's, it's learned behavior rather than, um, so that's you know, how you, dad treated mum or mum yeah. treated dad. That's yeah. how I will treat my wife or my husband. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, that's how marriages work or that's how parents treat the children. Yeah. And, and the same goes for, you know, discrimination of all kinds, you know, whether it's uh, color of skin or religion or how people present themselves or, you know, gender issues or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, it, if you, if you were a little top growing up and you see your your mum or dad doing it, well, that's that's how you behave, and that's that, that's what you learn, uh, unless that gets corrected somehow. Yeah, I'm fasc- fascinated to hear more about your role play stuff. That sounds really <laughs> really powerful. I mean, I, I love experiential it? learning, and I, I think real active scenarios where you put people in those zones where they actually feel because I, I think most learning for me occurs when there's a feeling of you, you you stimulate more than just the logic you stimulate mm-hmm. that that passion side so i guess that's how your training works you really are creating this feeling feel the need type stuff aren't you well it, it's it's really tapping into where you go when you're frightened because we we deliberately frighten people in controlled circumstances we tell people we're going to do that as well by the way so they they know it um, and we, we get them to sign a piece of paper because we say we're going to say really horrible stuff to you with your permission. If there's something you don't want us to say, then please tell us. Otherwise we, we could let anything out of our mouths. Um, and we say that, but also add to it, but please don't, don't tell us if you can, because we're going to use stuff that could really be used against you in real life. And if you block that off, it's not reality. So whilst uh, some people think, oh, you can't say that sort of thing, actually, we're doing it for the best of intentions. And I'll give you an example. Again, with, it's with a train operating company, actually. I, I remember distinctly that we um, we were doing a, a training session, uh, probably about uh, 14, 15, 16 people, something like that. And about a quarter of the people that were in the room were black. And we did a an intimidating scenario where uh, we had a black lady uh, and I was the intimidator. So I was swearing at her. I used racist language and I did this to provoke the, the fear and the, the anxiety that, that we need for this to work and for them to benefit the most and learn how to deal with that. And she dealt with me really, really well. She was very professional. She was excellent. Coach helped her a little bit, but she did fantastically well. And so I, when we're not doing the, the physical side of things, I, I retreat. That's, that's how she knows it's working because I, I go back because it's not working. And she's very assertive and she dealt with it very well. And as soon as she walked off, she went, I'm so glad I did this today. But in the audience was a white lady who it was all about her and her importance on the day. And she complained, I don't see why you have to use racist behavior. I said, well, I don't like racism any more than you do. But we're, we're doing this because we're trying to be realistic and help anyone on this course prepare most effectively to deal with nasty stuff that might happen. That's what this course is all about. It's about dealing with aggression and violence. So if you limit what we're going to say, and that lady didn't limit us, by the way, she allowed us to, to deal with it. And, and she wasn't bothered at all. She was really pleased she didn't, she'd done it. And the three other black people in the room gave her a round of applause, were very happy with what went. And we did something similar with some of them as well. It wasn't always racist language that we used, 
It might have been their appearance or their job role or something we weren't happy with in, in, t- in the context of a, a railway situation from a service point of view. And um, she wouldn't accept that. She said, no, I, I still don't see why you have to. I understand the need for it to be um, realistic, but I still don't understand why you have to use racist language. Like, that's real. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's real life, unfortunately. As much as we might not like it not to be, that's real life. And so, you know, if, if you were on a course, Joe, for example, I would do all sorts of transgender st- stuff, you know, which other people might think, how dare you do what? But the reason I'd do it, and I would only do it with your permission, but to, to put you in a situation where you felt uncomfortable and had to really learn how to deal with it in the moment. And the coach would help you if you, if you were struggling with it. But if you're doing fantastically well, they just say, well done, Joe, keep going. Excellent. And it, we do the same with, um, people of all varieties. I mean, we've had mute people on a course, deaf people on a course, people in wheelchairs, um, of every, every color of skin that you can imagine. From every, well, not every nationality, but a lot, lot of different nationalities from, um, Somalian through to Pakistani to Czech to Slovakian to you name it. We've, we've worked with, with plenty of lots of different communities. And, um, it's, it's, I'm just trying to think of anybody else who's ever complained about it. I can't think of anybody else, honestly, in the, I've been doing this since uh, about 12 years ago. Um, she's the only person that's actually had a problem, but it was all about her. And she came late for the session. She didn't sign the piece of paper. We didn't give the, get the opportunity to tell, tell her about what the circumstances were and, and to get her to read the sheet that she needed to sign. And, um, you know, it was just very unfortunate. Um, but most importantly, the people that needed the help got the help they needed on the day. And so we, we'd done our job. <laughs> it's not your usual course. Yeah, no, I, I, can, no, I, can ima- I can imagine. And often it's people feigning offended on behalf of somebody else when mm. all, all they're really doing is they're having their kind of privilege challenge, aren't they? They're kind of like, well, I don't want to listen to that language. It, it doesn't happen in my world sort of thing. So you're being offensive without – but they often did not realizing that that's everyday lived experience for many people. Yeah, that's right. And that's the reality of the world. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, and that's, that's where it came from. And I, I think also I might be being unfair here, but I, I sensed a little bit of, uh, well, those, those poor black people don't, they're not able to look after themselves. So I've got to do this for them. I sensed a little bit of that as well, which I thought was very distasteful. Well, that benevolence, that, yeah. that maternal, paternal yeah. kind of, yeah. So um, yeah, no, that, that's that's quite prevalent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, fortunately, most people that I, I talk to in the workplace, a lot of this is kind of subtle. It's 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 not overt. Mm-hmm. It's the microaggressions. It's the kind of the, the whispering behind their backs. The you know, if you talk about maybe trans people, the misgendering yeah. or the or the misnaming or the that that look or the mm-hmm. or the subtle exclusion or being suddenly you find you're tolerated and people walking away from you or the yeah the playground bully stuff not mm-hmm. not not physical a lot of it's more mental or subtle and that, that's that's the frustration this this humiliation this um yeah that doesn't always lend itself to the sort of aggression and the high octane stuff i've just described but what we also do sometimes is and quite often actually we do something called forum theater where we act out a situation and people throw situation to us and say, right, can you role play this please? So two of us role play the situation on their behalf. And then they correct and say, oh no, it doesn't work, work out quite like that. Or um, they throw in an idea of how it could work. You know, can you replay that, say it like this or change, change the circumstance. And they find it very, very um, practical. And so those microaggressions that you're talking about might be a really good thing to work on there. When, yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking it's sort of like the in the office where some casual sexism is at play, mm-hmm. where the woman in the room is expected to clear the table after the meeting or make the mm-hmm. coffees or or be talked over. So it's more techniques to be able to, to exert your your presence, your authority, seek allies, seek people to, around you to amplify you, and to say actually. 
it's not my role to, to clear the coffee cups up. Um, can somebody, yeah, it's not fair or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the retort is, or, or it might, in my particular instance, if someone calls me mate, it's mm-hmm. like, actually, I'm not your mate. That's not language I, I, I like to use. Yeah. You, I don't mind if you, personally, I don't mind if you call me love, whereas many, many women will find love offensive, but I kind mm-hmm. of think it's, well, it's actually quite validating. Mm-hmm. I, to be treated in a sexist way is perversely quite validating for me. Uh, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. It, those are the kind of the workplace things that go on day in day out, and that's if you like, they're not physical, they're not overt. I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, the experiential stuff you're doing here is is very much out in the street. And I, I fully understand. I fully see the need of it. Is how how can people learn these techniques for the these micro, these kind of these subtle things, isn't it? The drip, well, drip, drip stuff. Yeah, that, that's more the forum theatre stuff that we do, and um, sitting down and talking things through. But again, it can be extremely upsetting when you're on the receiving end. So having some, we we train people in um, something called heart rate variability control, for example, so that you you control the sinusoidal wave of um, of your heart rate and the how it changes because your heart's change all the time. And if you can control that, you control the overproduction of adrenaline and cortisol. You make yourself feel much better through producing something called DHEA and have more focus by producing something called acetylcholine. If you can get the frequency of your heart working correctly, we, we teach people how to do that, and it enables you to access your thinking brain again. So if you've mm. slipped into fight or flight, then this can just focus you back very quickly. So you can use all of that great experience and, and abilities and you can, you can herd people to help you and support you and, and have a strategy. Um, but if you, and if you can't do that or you're terrified or you're frozen, which happens to a lot of people, especially on our mm. intimidating courses, like bunny in the headlights type of thing. Um, if you don't have those, those techniques, you can't, then move forwards and you can't have those discussions and use those techniques that can um, really assert mm. the situation is not correct and would you please do this type of response. Um, yeah, it, it's a challenge. When you, when you said something about I'm not your mate, it just made me laugh because uh, I'm known in my family as saying things like that. So, so we have, at home we had a guy around making um, – making some electrical repairs around the house. And uh, every second word was mate. All right, mate, we're going to put that installation there, mate. And then we're going to do this, mate. And then we're going to do that, mate. And I got sick and tired of it. And I said, look, can I just stop you there? I'm not your mate. You can call me Mark. You can call me the boss. You can call me sir. You can call me customer, Mr. Customer. But I'm not your mate. I'm your customer. And when my kids heard that, I was like, Dad, you can't say that. I said, well. Well, someone has to. Yeah. Somebody has to say that. Yeah, that's You really thing. do sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned HRV, and I found out a little bit about HRV. I was at a seminar okay. probably just over a year ago. Mm. And there was this study going on around the impact of HRV or the correlation between HRV and stress. Mm-hmm. And they, they found – 30 CEOs and they wired them up with a, with a monitor 24 by seven for like three or four weeks. And they wired up some other people who are not in those kind of roles, uh, people in sort of kind of benevolence or calm roles. And what they identified is some of these CEOs. So, so red in their language was high, high, was a low HRV. So low HRV is bad. High HRV is good. You want, you want a big heart rate variability rather than a little one. Mm. That's what they were saying. So, so they identified that a lot of these CEOs had HRV in a dangerous way, almost 24 by 7. So even when they were sleeping, their HRV was in the stress zone. Uh-huh. And, and they, they identified that over the course of a day, they probably had five or ten minutes spread throughout the day where their HRV was kind of relaxed. And then they compared that with the HRV of people in non-stressful roles or people who've got their kind of stress under control. And they were the almost like polar opposite where their HRV mm. would spike, but all their sleep, all their, all their sleep pattern was unbroken by, by basically this HRV being kind of in the green zone. And so there's a huge link between heart attacks, strokes, uh, mental well-being uh, on HRV as well. So you're talking about this mm. fight or flight. This, this, And I also noticed that my Apple watch now has this breathe app and the okay. breathe app 
when you when you activate the breathe functionality, it actually it causes an HRV mechanism to monitor during that breathe cycle. So I, I've become a, since that talk, and, and you mentioned, I've become kind of aware of the link between HRV, stress, anxiety, and other things. Mm. Yeah, it, it's all it's all interlinked. I, I first started working that in um, two thousand seven, and uh, and I've got a a little piece of software on my computer that I hook people up to so that they can actually see their heart rate variability as they're as they're doing this exercise. And there's all sorts of software that um, that can help train people to do it. And um, it, it's a bit of fun, yeah. but it's very, very practical stuff. That's that's all yeah. I'm interested in, practical things that will, that will help. Well, I just think I'm, I'm fairly relaxed a lot of the time these days, but my HRV is is not great. And I don't know why that is because I'm not – I'm pretty – I'm pretty chilled out. I don't. I don't worry about a lot at the moment, and uh, so yeah, I, I'm just. I'm trying to figure out why my HRV is. So it's, it's, I've got a very low HRV, which I think is bad, isn't it? You got you want big variability to indicate your. Well, I, when I've been doing, I mean, I've been doing this quite a while, and I see, I often get people out to demonstrate how you can by yourself learn how to control your heart rate variability, and to me, it's the. It's the shape of the curve that's more important. Some people have much shorter curves than others, so I'm not I, I'm not familiar with the, the the research that you're talking about. I'd be very interested to have a look at it. But it, to my mind, having done this for a long time, the it's not so much the, the variability and, and your the elasticity of your heart heart rate reduces as you get older anyway. So as you get older, you're going to have less of a, a peak and trough anyway, simply because right. your, your heart, you know, imagine that when you're a 10 a year old, then you're a 20 year old, you know, you you have very, um, huge flexibility in, in all of your body, not just your heart. And, and it's just a s- symptom of that. Whereas when you, as you get older, you know, things seize up a bit and don't work quite as well. Um, I think that was the key thing. The, the recovery going from high anxiety to, to low anxiety that was the, that was the key, as you said. That the, the curve on the way back down is, uh-huh. is the important thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, and it's easy to learn. You know, it, it's just simple techniques, but then you can bolster it with some psychological techniques. And uh, if we had more time, I could I could go into some of those and explain oh, how they work. But sure. I mean, I I I, I do suffer from. Uh, uh, high blood pressure, and whenever I was having my blood pressure taken, I knew that if I could get myself into a zone, and I could reduce it from being one hundred and fifty over to one hundred and twenty over, just by really just by putting myself in this place in my head. Yeah, and I could I, I could actually think my blood pressure down. Yes, and the nurse looked at me like I was crazy. I said, "Well, no, just give me a second now." And she go, "Wow, how do you do that?" I said, "I just got to put myself in this place where I can do that." Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's like a, a, a micro meditation, isn't it? It's kind of some way of just knowing you can bring, you can take control of your body again. Yeah, I, I use distraction techniques um, in a whole host of things. I mean, in heart rate variability, and also when I do um, havening, for example, as well, um, which is a trauma therapy I use. And the power of the mind is is phenomenal, and we don't we don't tap into it enough. You know, we we allow no. it to run us rather than us take control. So I help people take the control back. Well, on, on that note, I think I mean, we could talk. We've been going just over an hour. I'm sure we could talk <laughs> for a lot longer. And yeah, we have. And uh, I, I think what, what we do is we, if we wrap it up there, I mean, and, and, and anyone who's listening, I'm sure can get in contact with you. So how can people get in touch? And what's the best way of finding you? Well, it, it's been... It's been pretty enjoyable, Joe. Thanks for that. I wasn't anticipating the breadth of stuff we were going to talk about today. Um, <laughs> but to get in touch, if you if you look Mark Wingfield from Max up M A X, you'll find me in a, in any search engine. Um, but I'm on um, LinkedIn, uh, a little bit on Twitter. I've just just started on Instagram. I'm just dab- dabbling, dipping my toe in Instagram. That's under Max Train Develop, and um, I have a. Haveningmax.com is my Havening website, um, but I'm also um, on maxconflictmanagement.com because that's a lot of the bread and butter work that I normally do. Uh, that's always MAX. So thank you very much indeed, Joe. It's been fun. And um, yeah, we'll talk brilliant. again soon. 
didn't you mention that uh, you've got an offer for oh, anyone yes. who's listening that they can uh, they can uh, take Indeed. take a bash off for the new year? Is that yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah thanks for reminding me. I forgot all about that. Um, yeah, I I run online workshops to learn how to um, reduce fear and anxiety. And they've been very successful and popular since I first started doing them in May. And they're continuing. So into the new year, um, there'll be various dates on my Eventbrite site. So again, if you look up Max Training and Development on Eventbrite, and if you put in uh, Joe Lockwood as a code, uh, that's J-O, so um, capital letter J, then uh, lowercase, that's the word, <laughs> lowercase O, and then uppercase L, and then the rest of Lockwood as a code, no gaps. Um, as a thank you for anybody coming on here and, and listening to, to me spout away for a little while, um, there's an immediate 10% off um, coming along there. And um, so, yeah, everybody welcome to come along. Uh, you don't have to talk about what it might be that upsets you or you want to work with. It's very quick. It's permanent. It's fantastic. So um, come along, experience. There's a video on the on the Eventbrite page to explain what, what all that's about. Um, but thank you for reminding me, Joe. Yeah, that's that's open to anybody. Brilliant. Uh, what I'll do is I'll make sure we put those details when on the show notes and uh, when we share this episode. So, yeah, click click below. You'll find it, and uh, we'll make sure you do that. So thank you very much, and a huge thank you to the listeners, you, for, for tuning in. Uh, please do subscribe and keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast, that B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. I'm sure you have loads. Well, I've got a number of exciting guests lined up, just like Mark, and I'm sure you'll be inspired by them over the next few weeks and months. And, of course, if you'd like to be a guest, if you'd like to inspire people, I'd welcome you to get in touch as well. So as always, if you've got any ideas, feedback, suggestions, then please do email me to joe.lockwood at uk. I'd love your thoughts on how we can improve. So finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.